Well, good to see you all this summer evening and uh, looking forward to our uh, time together. A couple of things before we jump in. Uh, the text we'll be looking at on Sunday is uh, unknown to me at this point in time. Uh, we're not going to continue our study in the book of Acts. We're going to look at a bit of a thematic message uh, for this upcoming 4th of July celebration as we do each year. The kids will be joining us with the choir, singing some patriotic songs on Sunday. Uh, so I encourage you to be here for that. And then after that, we'll have our annual church picnic out on the grass. A great time uh, to be together, break bread together, and just enjoy what God has done in our lives. Amen. Now, I'd also covet your prayers as tomorrow morning, about 11, well, not about, at 11 o'clock, I'll be doing a, a live His Channel program with my good friend John Randall called Focus Point. And if you want to tune in to HisChannel.com and click the live TV button, you can catch it. We're going to be talking about uh, last day's events. And then Mike and I are going to pre-record a World News Briefing tomorrow afternoon, and uh, it will air at 6 p.m. in its normal time. And then after we're done, I'm going to drive out to Indian Wells and uh, spend the night out there tomorrow evening. I'll be the opening speaker at the end, or the first ever Hope for Our Times Prophecy Conference out in Indian Wells at the uh, Hyatt Regency. And I'll be speaking at uh, 1 p.m. Friday, if you would remember me in prayer, and then driving home and uh, studying frantically uh, Friday night and Saturday morning, getting ready for Sunday. And I'll be back here with you Sunday morning. So uh, appreciate and covet your prayers. And I know you will because you just said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, you ready for tonight? Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel 24. And as I mentioned during prayer, this is a text that is familiar to most of us. And some of the things uh, we'll see in the text are things that are readily called to mind as uh, students of Scripture. But I'll just remind you that last week we highlighted there was a contrast between the two main characters in our chapters of late, and that will continue tonight. And we noted that two men were approaching the same situation. One was actually the cause of the situation, that being Saul. But we made the point that in the midst of this, the contrast that was presented to us was a reminder for us all that there are things we are to do when we're faced with attacks from outside or within. And Saul was indeed wrong in initiating the situation that David and the 600 men with him were experiencing. But when we have situations forced upon us by outside forces or actions of others, we have to make the decision, as we noted last week through our title, whether we're going to be plotting or whether we're going to be praying. Now, Saul plotted against David. David prayed to the Lord against Saul's plots. One man had everything he was trying to do thwarted. The other man had every one of his prayers answered. Now, if you remember in 1 Samuel 23, 9 to 13, we were told when David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord gave David an answer he probably didn't want to hear which was, they will deliver you. 
So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they could go. Then it was told to Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. Now, Saul plotted and failed. David prayed and escaped. And we noted that there were reasons for this, and the first was simply a point of recognition, if you remember, that plotting is an effort to get what you want. Praying is the way to get what you need. And Saul was indeed a man driven by the flesh, as we'll see that uh, more clearly even tonight. And Saul could plot all that he wanted, but God had a plan for David. God had made a promise to David that he was going to be king, and Saul could do nothing to stop it. Now, we also noted that David didn't just sit there and say, well, the Lord's my deliverer. He's going to do this or that, and I'll let him handle Saul, and I'll just wait here and watch the action from the sidelines. He asked the Lord if the men of Keilah were going to turn him over to Saul. The Lord said, yes. So David took off, he and his 600 men, in every direction. And we were reminded of this. Here was our second truth from last week. Plotting can never change God's plan. Prayer gives us access to knowing them. If we need to know what to do, we need to ask the Lord. Amen? And we'll further highlight that in our time tonight. But the plots, which are of the flesh, are never going to lead to anything that is appropriate or best for us. Now, lastly, we noted that Saul was never going to get his way because what he wanted was actually directly against the will of God. David was never going to get captured. David was never going to be killed by Saul because that would have been contrary to promises made to David by the Lord through Samuel. Yet, Saul kept plotting. His plots kept failing. David kept praying and the Lord kept leading. So we have to make the decision between those two options. Being reminded, lastly, last week, that prayer will lead us into God's will. Plotting will lead us out of it because plotting, again, is of the flesh. Now, we made note last time that the word plotted can mean to cease. It can also be used to describe the condition of deafness. It can be translated as to leave off speaking or to be completely silent, to speak not a word or to hold one's tongue. Now, what this told us is that Saul had quit speaking to the one that David was constantly speaking to, which was the Lord. Now, our chapter is interesting tonight in that we're going to be kind of reintroduced to old Saul, the Saul we met In earlier chapters, the man with a conscience, the man who was concerned about the loss of donkeys and his search for them because they were his father's and he was sent out and he went out in obedience. And then he became concerned about his father's worry over him. And he was a man indeed who cared about those close to him. He was a man of conscience, as we said a moment ago. Well, we're going to be introduced to him for a moment and we're going to see tonight a man who could be reasoned with at least for the moment, a man who can see truth through his own emotions, at least for the moment. And he's a man who admits his guilt and his fault for the moment. Now, that gives us an indication of what's coming in later chapters. But what brings about this momentary shift in attitude is the attitude of David and the actions that paralleled his attitude. Now, we're told by Jesus in the opening words of the Sermon on the Mount, at least not far into it, I should say, in Matthew 5, 43 to 48, where Jesus said, say, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you. This is the checklist of our normal behaviors, right? And who persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward of you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. Boy, the tax collectors have never had a good reputation, even for the last 2,000 years, have they? Now, Jesus wouldn't say or make this statement for another 1,000 years, but he made it because it was true and always had been. And it was true and it was a principle that David lived by, even as the man after God's own heart. Now, it's also true that David was surrounded by others who sought to have David do differently than what we see in our text. And we'll talk about that in a few moments. They were trying to coax him into getting even and even taking the life of his enemy who had been pursuing not only David, but pursuing this group of 600 men as well. Now, this leads us to our title and topic tonight, which is something we all need to recognize, I think, especially in times such as these. And that is that there are going to be times when choosing to do what is right before the Lord is going to make us, and here's our title, the only one. Sometimes we're going to be the only one that is seeking to honor God in a situation. Sometimes we're going to be the only one that is seeking to honor God in a particular setting, even a family setting at times. Sometimes you and I will be the only one in a situation who is willing to both see and do things according to the will and ways of God. Now, we need to be reminded, we can stand alone. (laughs) That wasn't very convincing. We can stand alone. We have the power of the Spirit within us. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you and me. We're promised that the one who is in the world or the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world in 1 John 4.4. We can do all to stand. We need not fear the times where we are called to stand alone. Because there are times we must stand alone, and at times we will be the only one who is being opposed by all the voices and actions around us. So, we're going to learn from David how exactly you and I can do that as these scenarios, though different and distinct from David's, have basically the same underlying cause. And that is people who are opposed to what God has for Uh, So would you stand and read with me, please, from 1 Samuel chapter 24. We'll start with verses 1 through 7 and and, uh, finish off the chapter this evening. 1 Samuel 24, 1 to 7. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel who went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. 
And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. You may be seated. Now, if you remember, remember last time, if you remember, if you remember last time, Saul and his men were encircling David and his men and basically had them trapped. And a messenger arrived saying that the Philistines were attacking and Saul called off the search for David and went and did what he should have been doing in the first place. And that is defending his own people instead of trying to kill one of them. Now, it doesn't take much to get him back on track after the pursuit of the Philistines and whatever battle did ensue. As someone told him of David's whereabouts, that he was near the Dead Sea on the mountain heights of En Gedi. It's a place called the Goat Fountain, a place which Saul could reach from Maon, which he had traveled to, to fight against the Philistines in some six or seven hours. Now, Anyone who has been to Israel, anyone who has been to En Gedi knows that it is a pretty desolate place and all the ground and uh, soil is made of limestone and the rocks are uh, kind of coin shaped or or cone shaped, I should say, very steep. And there are are, uh, shrubs around there, as we talked about last week, the word for forest actually meaning an overgrowth of shrubs. But it's a tough place and some of these conical mountains, so to speak, rise to some 400 feet and all the slopes are scarred with uh, what's called wadis where the water would make its way down from the thunderstorms in to the Dead Sea. It was a place that was rich with caves as we see described in our text and they were places some that were large enough to hide 600 men and David. Now we're told that Saul on news of David's whereabout gathers 300 Choice men. In other words, these were hand-selected warriors for the purpose of tracking down an innocent man, he being David. And rather interestingly, he comes right to the cave where David is hiding with his men. And it says he goes into the cave to attend to his needs. Now, some have seen this as he went in to go to the bathroom. But actually, the phrase attend to his needs literally means to cover his feet. And from that... Some see this as he went in to take a nap in the cool of the cave. Now, either way, and I mention that because no matter what he went in to do, whether he was going to use the bathroom or whether he was going to take a nap, he would take off his kingly robe for either one of those situations. And that would give David easy and even undetected access to cut off a portion of his robe. Now, David's men say to him, the Lord has fulfilled his promise to you to deliver your enemies into your hand. Now, this is not a promise that's recorded in scripture, but the men obviously had heard it from David at some point in time. Now, again, pointing back to last week in 1 Samuel 23, 7, we're told Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. So God, so Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Now, Saul said the Lord delivered David into his hands when he hadn't. David's men made the same claim to David about Saul, and it was indeed true. But it wasn't true 
for the purpose that they assumed. They thought it was for the execution of Saul. So in essence, David stood alone against his own men that he was captain over, as previous chapters told us. Now, instead of killing Saul, he cut off a corner of Saul's robe to show Saul he could have killed him, but he didn't. Now, David felt bad even about this rather menial act against the king, and he regretted it, and he even told his men so. And then we're told he restrained his men, restrained them from killing Saul because his words were convicting to them, and he did not allow them to rise up against Saul, and Saul got up and left the cave. Now, we would ask the question, I think, what would give David this kind of attitude and approach to somebody who had tried to pin him to the wall with his spear three times or somebody who was relentlessly pursuing him, including in this scene, what would cause him to be a man who would feel guilty about just simply cutting off the corner of the king's robe when he had actually spared his life? Well, I think the answer is found in Proverbs ten twelve, where Solomon would later write, hatred stirs up what? Strife. But love does what? Covers all sins. Peter would quote from this. His quotation would be from the Septuagint, so it was worded a bit different, where he said in 1 Peter 4, 8, And above all, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, the word cover in the Hebrew is kind of interesting. It actually means to plump up. And what the implication is, figuratively, is it will fill up the hollows. It will fill up what is lacking in another person's character. It can also mean to conceal or hide or even to set something aside. And what Saul lacked, David filled up with love for the Lord and honor for the king. Now, this takes us to a point of observation concerning our dealings with those who have sought to bring us harm. And it will serve as a reminder And we are to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. Now, here's the first of our three considerations tonight. Listen, and again, it's a point of observation. Reconciliation is of the spirit. Retaliation is of the flesh. Reconciliation is of the spirit. Retaliation is of the flesh. David wanted to reconcile with Saul. He was constantly seeking to do so. All Saul wanted to do was retaliate against something that David himself didn't even do, but rather a song that the maiden sang after he had slain Goliath. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And if you remember from the point of that song on, Saul began to eye David. He eyed him with suspicion. So he was a man driven by the flesh. David was a man who walked in the spirit and therefore his pursuit was reconciliation while Saul's was retaliation. And again, as minor and minuscule of an act of cutting off a corner of Saul's robe, David was instantly convicted by the action because, though far short of the desire of the men with him, which was to kill Saul, this was actually an act of retaliation. It was a way to humble the king rather than honor the king as he knew he was responsible to do. As the law told him in Leviticus 19:18, and all the Jews, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall, listen to how familiar this is, you shall love your neighbor, how? As yourself, I am the Lord. Now, David was a man of the word, Saul was a man of the world, yet 
They were both Jews. Saul at that point in time was the king. David was his replacement. And David was not going to lift his hand in retaliation against his master, seeing that he was the anointed of the Lord. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because this phrase has been taken outside of its context and it's been used to say, you know, you should never say anything about a church leader or a pastor. You should touch not the Lord's anointed. And that's not the meaning here at all. As we'll see in our next section, David didn't refrain from confronting Saul. He did confront Saul and Saul's error. What the phrase actually is associated with is the attitude in the confrontation, not the act of confronting. The fact is, I think we need to understand this. Many need to understand this today because there are those who are uh, sometimes rightfully, sometimes wrongfully accusing others. And the attitude behind it is nothing that is consistent with how the scripture tells us we should act. Love covers a multitude of sins. Somebody say, Amen. So we see David's attitude manifesting itself here with his men, even before he actually goes out and confronts Saul. He's telling his men, he's not hiding in the corner. He's not saying, you know, to himself, gee, Lord, I feel bad. I wish I'd have never done that. He tells his men what he did was wrong because it was an act of retaliation. It was an act of humiliation against the one that the Lord had appointed as king, even though he wasn't God's first choice. He was the people's choice. David, being the man after God's own heart, was convicted by his actions. Now, Romans twelve seventeen to 21, we just talked about this last week too. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, which implies it's not always, but as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all the people you like. With who? With all men. Now, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, laugh at him. Do what now? Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, If you're the only one that sees things that way, it's still the way that we are to operate. And sometimes we're going to stand alone with this kind of attitude, especially in the world today that is filled with desires to retaliate and flesh driven and lust driven and all the other things that we see happening in our world today. Sometimes you're going to be the only one who does the right thing in the office or on the campus or in the warehouse or wherever it is you may spend your time or at the grocery store. You know, I find it interesting you know, when, when somebody in my heart, you know, because it's the right thing to do, certainly, but also whenever somebody, and this happens to all of us, somebody gives us a couple extra bucks or gives us change for a 20 when we give them a 10, you know, my heart is for the person that did that because I know they're going to have to balance their box afterwards and that $10 or whatever will come out of their pocket. And I'm shocked at the response of people when you give the money back to them and say, hey, you gave me too much money. <gasps> oh my gosh, really? Are you serious? You're going to give that? Well, of course I'm going to give it back to you. But this world is so backwards and upside down and all their thinking, something that is right is viewed as with just bizarre. 
And this is on really multiple levels and ways that we experience life today. And people look at us for standing in integrity, standing upon the word of God, having a moral standard that is distinct from the world. And there are going to be times where you're going to be the only one who is doing things the way God would have you to do them. But that is exactly what we're built to do. And how we can do it is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now. Let's look at 8 through 15 and pick up the story again. So David also arose afterwards, went out of the cave and called to Saul saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord has delivered you today in, into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you, but my eyes spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord, for he is my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and I did not kill you, know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand. And I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore, let the Lord judge and judge between you and me, and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. Now, after Saul and those who would have been guarding the mouth of the cave were a safe distance away, David then rises up. He emerges from the cave. He calls out to Saul. He greets him with the appropriate kingly greeting. He assumes a position of submission as he bows his face to the ground before King Saul. And some have used this as a reminder, commentators that it is, that we are to respect the office even when we cannot respect the person in it. And I think that is well demonstrated by David's actions here. Now, David then begins his confrontation. It began in humility when he was still in the cave unknown to Saul. And he says to Saul, why are you listening to the voices or the people who are saying, I seek your harm? Uh, David then offers proof that the accusations against him are false when he holds up a corner of the robe and says, see, the Lord delivered you into my hand. Some even wanted me to kill you, but I didn't. I spared you because I recognized your position of authority was given to you by God. Now, think about this. David says this while standing in front of the cave that Saul just exited from. And then he offers a clencher, so to speak, as he shows him the corner of the kingly robe, exposing to Saul how close he came to death, but was actually spared by the mercy of David. Now, David says that though there is neither evil nor rebellion against you in me, you seek my life when in comparison to you, I'm like a dead dog or a flea in comparison. Uh, David says through an ancient proverb, if I was wicked like I'm being accused of, you'd be dead. And twice he says to Saul, let the Lord judge between you and me. And then he adds in verse 12, let the Lord avenge me on you, but I will not avenge myself. 
I think the New Living Translation of verse 12 gives us a little better insight into what that uh, kind of archaic phrase means. Actually, what he says is, may the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord is going to punish you for what you're trying to do to me. Other translations even say, perhaps the Lord is going to kill you for you trying to kill me. But David says, but I will never harm you. Now, this again highlights for us the importance of attitudes because attitudes are where actions are born. And David, the true and anointed king of Israel, shows humility and respect to one who continually sought his demise. Now, a lesson for us from Jesus again in Matthew 18, 6 to 9. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet, to be cast into the everlasting fire. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Now, there's an important contrast that's being presented here by Jesus, even as he's employing a bit of hyperbole to make the point. Now, he says here, first of all, if somebody causes one of these little ones to stumble, the church should get together, tie a millstone around their neck and throw them off the local pier. Is that what it says? No, that's not what it says. What it does say is this. It would be better for someone who causes uh, causes the little ones to stumble to have that happen to them than the woes that are coming upon them because of their offenses. Then in contrast, he says, take drastic action against your own sin. And he illustrates the point through the, the very graphic descriptions of cutting off the hand and plucking out the eye if they're the cause of your sin. We know that all sin is born in the heart, obviously. So he's making an illustration. Do something radical to stop the course of sin in your own life and recognize when there are those who are causing others to stumble or sinning against you and potentially causing you to stumble. He is reminding us that he is going to take care of them someday. Woe to those who cause the offenses. Now in Second Peter three fourteen to 18, Peter says this, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do the rest of the scriptures. Just a little side note, Peter is recognizing Paul's epistles as scripture. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory for now, uh, both now and forever. Amen. Now, David did not allow himself to fall from his own steadfastness, even though he had counselors around him who were reminding him of something that he told them the Lord had promised them. Nor was he allowing Saul's continuous assaults or efforts to assault him and kill him 
to create David's own actions. He sought to do what was right before the Lord. Now, this gives us our next truth. And this, again, is something that's timely for us all in such a time as we live. Listen tonight. God's way is the right way, even when you're the only one who follows it. God's way is the right way, even when you are the only one who follows it. Now, I want you to think about this. David's actions were based on God's promises, not Saul's behavior. His actions were based on God's promises, not Saul's behavior. And again, that doesn't mean that David did nothing to protect himself, but it does mean that David did nothing to avenge himself. And in Matthew 5, 10 to 12, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount at the end of the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, Jesus is saying this is a pattern in life. Those who want to honor God, those who want to serve the Lord, those who want to do what is right before the Lord, even when they're persecuted because of their association with the Lord, this is going to be something that God notes. And there is a reward for those who have those experiences awaiting them in heaven. Now listen, David had a promise from God, yet it had a future fulfillment. Remember when the Lord had Samuel select David as Israel's king and noted that the Lord, he told Saul, the Lord has rejected you as being king and he has chosen a better man than you. Even though he had that promise, even though he is labeled as a man after God's own heart, he waited 25 years for the realization of what God had promised him. Now, let me remind you of what we have as well from John 14, 1 to 3, where Jesus said to his disciples on a very troubling evening, the Last Supper, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. I'll wait for you. That's exciting stuff. Now, we have been given this promise that the Lord is going to come and take us to the Father's house in which are many mansions. And between the promise given and the actualization of that, there's going to be times where we need to stand alone and stand on the promises and proclamations of God's word. And listen, sometimes the people we are engaged with in the normal situations of life do not stand for or follow the ways of the Lord. Sometimes they adamantly even oppose the things of God. But like with David, like we pointed out at the top of our section, their behavior is not to determine ours. Our behavior is to be modeled after that of the ultimate example, and that being Jesus himself. Our behavior is determined by the word of God. And this will be true until what we have been promised becomes our eternal reality. We are in the Father's house forever with Jesus. Now, Luke 6.26 also reminds us, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to who? To the false prophets. And boy, do we see this being 
manifested today. I just, I can't believe some of the things that people fall for today. It's kind of like the Jehovah Witnesses. I ran across a guy uh, one time and we were talking and he said, you know, we have one of the 144,000 at our kingdom hall. I said, really? Who told you they were one of the 144,000? He did. That's all you needed, huh? And you just believed them. And there are people today who are saying, you know what? I've ascended into heaven. I'm an apostle in the same form of Peter, James, and John. Or I'm a prophet in the same way that Elijah was a prophet or Isaiah was a prophet. And they're just doing so. And people are speaking well of them in the multitudes and masses today where the Bible actually tells us that the last prophet, Jesus himself said, the last prophet was John the Baptist in the Old Testament sense. We still have the gift of prophecy today, amen? We still have that in operation today. But as far as a prophet in the sense of the men I mentioned a moment ago, there's no such thing. Hebrews tells us in time past, the father spoke through the prophets, but in the last days has spoken to us through a son. There are those today claiming to be apostles in a capital A sense, meaning they hold the office of an apostle. And yet Paul himself said, if you're an apostle like myself and the other original 11, that means you have seen Jesus in his resurrected form, which means he either came down to earth and revealed himself to you, or you went up to heaven and you saw him There, we know where he is. He's seated at the right hand of majesty on high, living daily to make intercession for you and I. Amen? So, listen, all these things today are so bizarre and very definitely troubling. And sometimes, and I'll probably get some emails over what I just said tonight. But the truth is, you know, when everybody is speaking well of you, when everybody's complimenting you, They've done so to the false prophets of the past. And listen, some people are not going to like our message. Some people, believe me, some people are not going to like our message. They're not going to like the moral stand that we take, especially in these ever-darkening last days. And David addressed those who spoke evil of them to Saul. And his countermeasure was, Saul, don't listen to them. That has to be our countermeasure today as well. Not to listen to things that are contrary to Scripture or leading people astray or causing people to fall from their steadfastness. Now listen, we also need to take note of this. When David said, Saul, you're listening to people who are lying to you, he didn't then organize a hit squad from among his 600 men. He didn't launch a smear campaign in an effort to ruin their reputations. He kept the matter between he and Saul and said... Let the Lord judge between you and me, and we'll see who actually was the only one between us two who was right when the Lord does judge. Now, God's way is the right way even when you're the only one who follows it. And there are times where that's going to be your testimony. Somebody say, now let's wrap it up with 16 to 22. Then, I'm sorry, I'm going to read chapter 23 again. So it was, when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done me this day. 
done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now, the words, the actions of David caused Saul to have a momentary return to rational thinking as he weeps loudly and declares exactly what Paul wrote in Romans 12, that David had overcome Saul's evil with good. Saul admits the evil he had done against David, and yet David did not repay evil with evil, but spared Saul's life. Saul goes as far to say, now I know that you indeed are going to be king. And then he seeks a vow from David that he would not kill his descendants and thus destroy his family name. If you remember, Jonathan sought after the same thing in 1 Samuel 20, 14 to 16, where he said to David, And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now Saul and Jonathan both sought this covenant with David, so to speak, due to the fact that the custom of the day was that when a new royal family or royal house rose to power, they would kill all the potential heirs to avoid any future insurrection or coup by the former king or royal family's family members. Now we need to remember Saul was Israel's first king. Prior to Saul's rise to power and the Lord giving the people what they asked for in a king, the Lord was the one who oversaw the nation. And that was one of the things that Samuel pointed out continually about the people demanding a king like other nations. So the only example that Saul had and Jonathan had were the pagan kingdoms. And thus they sought from David the vow that he would not kill their descendants, that their family name might continue on. And after David swore to Saul that he would not destroy his name from his father's house, it is worth noting that David did not return to Gibeah with Saul, nor did Saul make the offer for him to do so. Now, our text doesn't state it directly, but it seems likely that this was discernment on David's part because he had seen Saul vacillate regarding himself in the past. And this tearful condition and respite from pursuit could only be or possibly was only temporary. And as we'll see in later chapters, David was right. Now, David would also write of his time in the wilderness of Judah, where in Gedi is in the Psalms. And we're going to need to capture uh, all of this and read the whole of Psalm 63 and uh, just verses uh, 1 through 11, where David said this, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with the marrow and fatness and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I will meditate on you in the night watches. Because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows closely behind you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it 
shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory, but the mouth of those who speak lies shall be what? Stopped. Look at David's reliance and remembrance of the faithfulness of God. And I couldn't help but think, but what a, what a wonderful thing hindsight is. It's been often said, hindsight is what? 2020. We can see clearly the things that lay behind us. But here's the thing we often don't attach to that statement. Hindsight should give us great foresight when we're facing something in the here and now. And we need to note that what David did yielded the result that God said it would. In dry times, on the run, David began his day, as he wrote in Psalm 63, early he was seeking the Lord. I think we could also see that as saying in our situations, in our circumstances, let's not seek the Lord last. Let's start with seeking the Lord. Let's seek him early. Let's seek him soon. Let's seek him immediately when things on the horizon seem to be changing for us. And what he saw was the Lord's power and glory through the lens of his past experiences. He is leaning on what God had done. He is leaning on how God had been faithful in order to face the present situation that he was now dealing with. And he said, as long as I'm alive, my hands are going to be lifted in praise to you and the expectation that you are going to be my help. Listen, maybe you're in deep water tonight. God is going to be your help. Maybe you are under attack tonight. God is going to be your help. Maybe your circumstances are not what you want or desire or saw coming. God is going to be your help. So lift your hands in praise tonight because God is good and he is faithful to us. Amen. And he mentions in Psalm 63 exactly what we see in 1 Samuel 24. He states the future of those who seek his life, but he's not the one to bring about their future. He leaves that in the Lord's hands. Now, this brings us to the last thing we need to consider from our chapter and title tonight. And it's just, again, a simplistic reminder, but it's a significant reminder. And it says, listen, God is the only one who is always right and knows what's best. God's the only one who is always right and knows what's best. Do you believe that God is always right? Now, then what he says is the only way to handle our situations, including things like attacks from people who shouldn't be attacking us or people who actually should be on our side. And Joshua 1, 7 to 9, when the Lord had promised to Joshua that he was going to be with him just as he was with Moses, he gives him this exhortation in 7 to 9 of chapter 1, only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. Remember Psalm 1 and the benefits of meditating on the word day and night. That you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, not just the parts you like or agree with. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. And then the Lord says this. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you. Read it, please. Wherever you, is that true for you? Well, of course it is. 
And listen, we should follow the path the Lord directs us on, even when we're the only one on it. Because the truth is, he is the only one who knows what's right. He is the only one who knows what's best. And only in his ways will we have the ability to prosper wherever we may go. And the fact is, this is how we can go and be strong and of good courage because we're following his directions. Now, that would include times like David is facing here. A repeat offender is pursuing him vigorously and aggressively and seeking to kill him. And now he stands before him crying, apologizing, and even recognizing David's calling. David needed something bigger than emotions that were born from the moment to tell him what to do next. And that's why he's not saying, oh, Saul, can I come home? Can I come and play soothing music for you once again? David, because he sought the Lord early in the situations of life, he knew that it was best to return to the stronghold of En Gedi rather than to the home of Saul in Gibeah. Now we're reminded in Psalm 17, 5, Uphold my steps in your path that my footsteps may not slip. Psalm 37, 23 to 24 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. Somebody say amen to that. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. Proverbs 69 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And listen, the path of the Lord keeps us from slip-ups in life. And it's the way of delight. And we can make our plans, but we need the Lord to direct our steps. For his ways are higher, his ways are better, and his way will always be the right way, even when we're the only one following his way in any given situation. God is always right, and his ways are always best. So let's do what he says and experience the blessings of having done so. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. And Father, again, we're grateful for this chapter tonight. Thank you for the mercy we see displayed in David. Thank you, Lord, that we read some tough stuff in earlier chapters too, and see that the man after your own heart did fall, but he wasn't utterly cast down. He did lie. It did cost people their lives, but he got back to doing what was right before you and sought you early and then saw the good that he repaid with evil, bear fruit. Lord, even though it was fruit for the moment, as we'll see in coming chapters, it was a moment where he was able to come up for air. And Lord, boy, do we need those moments in the world we live in today. So help us, Lord, like David, to do what is right, even when the voices around us, other voices who are those with us, who are telling us to do something that is contrary to what we've been convicted from your word of in our hearts or simply been directly instructed of from your word. Help us to do what's right, even if we're the only one doing it. And Lord, help us to remember, especially our last point. If you said it, it's right. And there's no debate about it. And if you said it, not only is it right, it's best. It's not second best for us. It's not an alternative plan. It's not plan B, C, or D. It is plan A, and it's always the best way. So help us, Lord, to have respect and honor for your word and to do the things written in it. Lord, that our way may be prosperous and that we may 
have good success. We thank you for the things we've learned and gleaned tonight from this familiar and uh, interesting story from the life of David and his encounters with Saul. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.